Now I am honored to introduce our keynote speaker today, Dale Doherty. Dale Doherty is passionate about learning. He is a maker. In fact, Dale believes we are all makers, and he is a fierce advocate for giving young people the opportunity to tinker, to discover, and to make. For Dale, it's a hands-on, do-it-yourself world, and we are all players. Dale is also a pioneer. He founded the largest DIY festival, Maker Fair, and was an early advocate for open source and the web. He developed the first commercial website on the World Wide Web in that long ago age, 1993. And he even coined the term Web 2.0. Today, Dale is president and CEO of Maker Media, which publishes Make Magazine. He is a former publisher of Web Review, an online magazine for web designers, and has developed a series of books called Hack to, quote, reclaim the term hacking for the good guys. He has much to say about the relevance of making to teaching and learning, and is an ardent supporter for preparing the next generation to be the makers of the future. Mr. Doherty. Thank you, Dean Levine, for the nice welcome, and I am really pleased for this opportunity to address the graduates here today. The philosopher of science, Karl Popper, wrote, all life is problem solving. He added that all organisms are inventors and technicians, good or not so good, successful or not so successful in solving technical problems. What to eat, what to build, where is it safe to live? All organisms, including people like you and me, have to figure out what to do each day to get food and find a place to sleep, and even more so, what makes us happy. If we accept what Popper says, then a person who is not solving problems is not really living. And an education that does not solve real problems is not really about learning. And a job that is, not only, that is only about solutions is not really working. We think that we are succeeding, but in fact we are not failing enough. We are not experiencing life as trial and error. Popper says error correction is the most important method in technology and learning in general. In biological revolution, it appears to be the only way we make progress. We are, by nature, experimentalists, not perfectionists. This is how we learn how we are programmed to learn, and taking the risk to experiment and trying to solve real problems is how we find a better way, but it also means we might fail. It is how we learn to make progress, this experimental life, which I believe is the key to us becoming artists, inventors, scientists, entrepreneurs, and activists. And I believe it is cultivated by the kind of learner and teacher we are. Today I want to illustrate this point by telling you about guitars and telescopes and the Hallelujah Chorus. I begin with the guitar. A guitar is a musical instrument, but it is also a technology and a craft. Almost anyone can afford a guitar, but if you can't, you could can make one. 
It can be easy to learn and hard to play well. I want to emphasize the word play. Learning to play guitar is an example of how practice trumps theory. You can't learn to play by reading a book about guitars or music. It is a matter of practice, but also of finding people you can learn from or learn with. A novice player seeks out a guitar teacher. A player at any level learns from interacting and playing with others. But not all those who play guitar know musical theory. John Lennon said that none of the Beatles knew how to read or write music. That is musical notation. They learned to play by ear. It's also true of Jimi Hendrix. His official bio says that Hendrix was entirely self-taught but his inability, his inability to read music made him concentrate even harder on the music he heard. He learned to play because he practiced incessantly, perhaps ignoring other aspects of his young life, such as school. When he left Seattle to perform in clubs in New York City, Hendrix didn't have the confidence in his own voice to sing while he played. Others had to push him to do so, and he discovered that he had, in fact, a distinctive voice. Hendrix became a master of guitar playing, who introduced innovative techniques that many have, others have since copied. One tech he created was based on recognizing a feedback loop. He noticed that amplified sound uh, from loudspeakers caused the strings of his electric guitar to vibrate. I imagine that his ability to listen to sound caused him to hear something that perhaps others didn't hear. Or if they did hear it, they ignored it and thought it was just noise. I imagine Hendrix walking up to the speaker and facing it with his guitar and trying to recreate on purpose what he had heard by accident. He must have tried repeatedly to do this and eventually gain control of this new sound. And Hendrix applied this feedback loop to generate a sound that probably could not be represented by musical notation. And it became a signature technique of his to make music. He transformed what could be an annoyance, a problem, into a form of creative expression. And feedback was something that could ruin a live performance, but he used it and integrated into his performance. He didn't just write music, he made music come alive. Now he also set the guitar on fire and he smashed his instrument on stage and that too became part of his performance and who he was. But let's talk telescopes. If you were to ask the young William Herschel who he was, he would have answered that he was a musician. He grew up in Hanover, Germany and by the age of 14 he had learned to play an astonishing array of instruments, the oboe, the violin, the harpsichord, the guitar, and even a little organ. He had an early fascination with musical notation and the theory of harmony. At 18, his parents had smuggled him out of Germany, and, uh, which was at war with France, and he ended up in London with no money and seemingly no future in a country where he did not speak the language. He lived modestly by teaching music lessons and playing in bands and working as a church organist. We don't know William Herschel today as a musician because in February 1766, at age 27, Herschel began keeping a journal of what he did at night, night after night, all night long. What he did was keep a record of his astronomical observations. He was up all night gazing at stars. And he had managed to acquire a small collection of telescopes. 
Now, Herschel knew about two kinds of telescopes. One was called a refractor, and the other was called a reflector. The refractor telescope created by Galileo was good for observing the moon and the known planets, but it was inadequate for looking much deeper into space. Newton had come up with a different kind of telescope, known as the reflector, that contained a large mirror for gathering light. And if the refractor telescope was good at magnification of close objects, the reflector telescope enhanced one's ability to see dim objects that were far away. Herschel realized he could improve the reflector telescope by using an even larger mirror and making it out of metal, not glass. Because he could not afford to have one made for him, he decided that he would make one himself. According to Richard Holmes in his book, The Age of Wonder, Herschel, by 1774, had created an instrument of unparalleled light, gathering power and clarity. He was the first to be able to see that the pole star, or north star, was actually two stars, not one. And by this means, Herschel began to build up an extraordinary instinctive familiarity with the patterning of the night sky, which gradually enabled him to sight-read it as a musician reads a score. Herschel's significance, according to Holmes, is that he began to conceive of deep, deep space, exploring beyond its surface into the depths of what he called a great unplumbed ocean of stars. And on a cool spring night in Bath, England, Herschel discovered an object in the night sky that he said had changed its place. It was an object that had, cataloged, had been cataloged as a star, and Herschel's telescope allowed him to investigate it further. At first, he thought it might be a comet, and he notified the Royal Society. But only later did he assert it was actually the seventh planet of the sun. This professional musician and amateur astronomer made a discovery that changed our universe, changed our understanding of the universe, and it changed his life. The king granted him an annual stipend to come to Windsor to live so that the royal family could have access to his telescopes. He continued building telescopes to sell to others so that more people could have better instruments with which to make astronomical observations. Yet, Herschel held the belief, on, based on the observations with the same telescopes, that the moon was inhabited by extraterrestrials he called lunarians. He believed he had discovered their colonies. Fortunately for him, he kept these notes private, and he did not publish them. But he had his experimental successes and failures. As Herschel gazed out on an ocean of stars, Jane Addams looked deeply into the sea of humanity in an industrialized Chicago. Her father was a miller, and she admired as a child the discoloration of his hands. And she wondered how she would develop hands like his. With her intellectual gifts and determined spirit, she became a social advocate for the poor. Her adult life was devoted to improving the lives of immigrants who worked long hours in factories for low wages and lived in crowded conditions. Life was unsafe, unsanitary, and unhealthy. Adams went to live with these immigrants in their neighborhood, establishing what she called a settlement house known as Hull House. Adams was hands-on, and she worked inside the community to observe the patterns of life and look for ways to improve the lives of those who lived in poverty. She was a community builder. She called Hull House an experimental effort to aid in the solution of the social industrial problems which are engendered by the modern conditions of life in a great city. 
Adams created associations, clubs, and social centers, turning disused buildings into recreation rooms and vacant lots into gardens. And she established medical clinics and schools. She was an organizer of spaces and a developer of innovative services. She began to invent the social fabric of a city that lacked a safety net. She what, saw what was happening to children of immigrants whose parents were away at work, and she created activities and a place where they could come every day instead of being locked inside or roaming the streets. She believed in the power of recreation as much as education for adults as well as children, and she organized hikes and built swimming pools and established debating clubs and poetry readings. Adams consistently described the process of experimentation as how she went about her work. She said, we continually conduct small but careful investigations at Hull House, which might guide us in our immediate doings. She added, some of the investigations are purely negative in result. She did not start out with a fixed set of solutions, and Hull House became a platform for experimentation where people with ideas ran trials to learn more about the problems and the people involved, as well as develop possible solutions. In her book, 20 years at Hull House. Adams describes her many social experiments as methods for social, uh, excuse me, methods for trash storage and removal, improving the diet of immigrant families, and protecting children and young women from exploitation. Some referred to her settlement as a sociological laboratory, but she was clear that such experiments were not taking place in labs, but in life. Adams describes meeting, a meeting of ta the tailors' union at Hull House, where the tailors ask for our cooperation in tagging the various parts of a man's coat to show the money made to the people who had made it. How much did it cost to cut the cloth or sew the buttonholes or the finishing? What part did salesmen take of the final price, and how did rent figure into the cost? She wrote that the desire of the manual worker to know the relation of his own labor to the whole is not only legitimate, but must form the basis of any intelligent action for his improvement. Jane Addams expressed her vision of the community she sought to create. She wrote, in a thousand voices singing the hallelujah chorus in Handel's Messiah, it is possible to distinguish the leading voices, but the differences of training and cultivation between them and the voices in the chorus are lost in the unity of purpose and in the fact that they are all human voices lifted by a high motive. She uses this analogy to describe what her settlements try to do. The community receives in exchange for the music of isolated voices the volume and strength of the chorus. Have you ever been to a community performance of the Hallelujah Chorus? It is a beautiful thing on its own terms, produced mostly by amateurs in much the way that Adams describes. This is not a passive experience. The audience is actively participating. Each is contributing to the volume and strength of the chorus. Active participation builds community and democracy. So if you take the creative power and individuality of Jimi Hendrix, combine it with the natural curiosity and dedicated application of technical ability of William Herschel, and add to it the community building represented by Jane Addams, this is what I see is so exciting and significant about the maker movement today, which will be recognized this Wednesday in an event at the White House. Creativity, curiosity, collaboration, and community in a context of endless experimentation. This is what learning is at its most authentic and what education aspires to be. 
This is the kind of life that our communities should foster, not for a few, but for all and especially for the young. UC Davis School of Education Associate Dean Paul Heckman, who I want to thank for the opportunity to be here, introduced me to a phrase from Jerome Bruner that authentic learning is deep immersion in a consequential activity. That phrase perfectly describes what is so magical about making and learning to make. Making is immersive play, and the consequential activity is problem solving. We discover real-world problems that need solving, and that helps us cultivate our own creativity and technical ability. Like music, making is a universal language for playing and learning with instruments for discovery. We are living in a new age of wonder. It's an amazing time to be alive with new inventions and new creative industries that are emerging. We are also living in an age when the industrial order is being disrupted and the nature of work is changing. Science and technology are driving this change and they could be used to solve problems which may benefit us all. That is what makes me hopeful. Yet it's also true that science and technology create their own problems and life may get better but not necessarily for all. So even as we prepare for change, we must prepare ourselves to confront what Adams called the cruelties and stupidities of life and strive to overcome them and help others to do so. You who will come of age in this future and be part of the change have your work cut out for you. You must act not knowing if the outcome will be good or not so good, successful or not so successful, to recall Popper's thought. That is really what it means to be an experimentalist. I see the maker community as an experimental community. It is also a creative community consisting of artists, inventors, and technicians who like solving problems. I invite you to participate as makers and as educators. Making is not easy, but it is more rewarding than things that are easy. And truthfully, nothing is really ever easy, but thankfully, thankfully we don't know that when we start out. I didn't know that a maker movement would emerge when I started a magazine for people who love to tinker and do cool projects. However, I gave the name to a community and I've devoted 10 years of life to building and organizing it. I followed an idea, gathered evidence by talking to people, and tested it out in a variety of ways. I organized resources, developed a team, and we produced an old-fashioned print magazine that reinvented popular mechanics and popular science for the 21st century. We created a feedback loop so that people told us what they make and how they made it. We learned that what we were doing mattered and it encouraged us to continue the work. We invited the maker community to share their projects through Maker Fair, like the largest one in San Mateo three weeks ago that attracted 130,000 people. Maker Fairs have spread in size and number around the world with many unexpected outcomes. All of them celebrate makers and help us discover in our community our capacity for invention and resourcefulness. A maker wrote to me after the recent Maker Fair, I can't tell you how good it feels to realize you're part of a larger community, and that's the gift that Maker Fair has given me. I didn't even know this existed before now, and I can't thank you enough. To see yourself as contributing to a larger community is an important incentive to create and innovate. So I say this to you, you graduates who should be so proud of what you've already accomplished, that now you must think even more deeply about what you can do to make change. But don't just think. It is time to start your practice. Choose your instrument, 
and find your voice. Listen for the feedback and get as close to the source as you can. Figure out what to look, how to look beyond what you can see with your own eyes and invent better lenses to see what is out there in greater detail. Believe in the star potential of every human being, but remember to gaze at the fullness of the sky. Look for really interesting problems. Finally, follow your passion to create and make. Yes, do this. But also, let your compassion for others lead you to serve a community that you care about deeply. So I say to you, graduates, hallelujah. Will you say with me, hallelujah. Thank you.